Here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. After a break over the holiday period, we are back and I'm delighted to say, because it would be none of those things without her, joining me is the fabulous Stephanie Pomboy. Oh, thank you so much. It's so good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy Chinese New Year. It's that long since we've chatted exactly last. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> we've thrown every New Year. <clears throat> now, Larry David would be appalled, Stephanie, you wishing me Happy New Year in February. There is, a, there is a deliberate cutoff. You're not allowed to well, do that. Well, that's why I specifically said Chinese New Year. Didn't it just happen this last week? Yes, it did. This last week, week okay. year of the tiger, I believe. Now, right. There is, there is certainly a giant inflatable tiger here in Sydney, which I presume is something to do with that. If not, I should probably be frightened. It's just another thing. I was. I thought you were saying in your hotel room. <laughs> that, no, no, that's no, a no, story no. I need to hear. No, 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 no. no. I, would, I would make up a, a great one, but no, I've got nothing for you. Well, it's... um. It's a new, it's a new year. It's a it's a new uh, dynamic. It seems to be in the stock market. Uh-huh. There are certainly we've we've come back to a world that's different to the one we last spoke about. Stock seemed to be able to go down again, Steph. It's shocking. It really Isn't is. It? Well, and I guess the Fed has discovered that it can pull the levers in two directions, not just one. And so that's that's really kind of breaking news. For most investors, apparently. Yeah, yeah no, exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, they we didn't know to... they could move it up. Well, oh. well, well. I mean, let's face it; they haven't yet. <laughs> right. Well, that's but true. They, but they are at least able to talk about moving up and see what that does. Which look, it's you know, it's really funny. This the January was um, was a really interesting month because it it did remind me of the early days of the end of the dot com bubble for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 the, the 0708 thing was a whole whole different kettle of fish, I think. But that. But it did take me back to some of those early days when some of the market darlings in the in the dot com boom were starting to crack. And yeah, you know, at the time, it's funny you don't really realize it at the time because you just think, oh, it's a dip. You know, and I think mm-hmm. back then, even with thought it was a dip, it was only with the benefit of hindsight you can see what was actually happening. But I think armed with the knowledge of two thousand, when looking at what's happening today, you can you can see so many similarities in in the price action that that hopefully will give people a clue beforehand. As opposed to after the after the wheels fall off. Yeah, even to 2007, 2008. One thing I've really had my eye on um, now that we've had this sort of snapback snapback rally is that the corporate credit market has continued to deteriorate. So you've had days where you know the Nasdaq has rallied, cryptos rallied, S and P broad averages, everything's up, but junk yields, even investment grade yields, yeah. continue to march higher, and that. You know, so effectively, the credit market's tightening, regardless of whether the Fed moves or how much that those wheels are already turning. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to discover pretty quickly what the threshold for pain is here. 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's funny anyway. right? because everybody always talks about how the bond market is the smart kid in the room and, and the equity market always kind of finally figures it out afterwards. And history demonstrates that that's almost universally correct. And yet, you know, no one pays attention to it, right? You're right. And, and, <laughs> and the signals being sent by the bond market and the rates markets are absolutely crystal clear. And yet people are still talking about, oh, you know, this is, we're going back to new all-time highs in the equity market. I, I just don't get that. Not only that, but uh, um, flows into levered loan funds had their largest weekly inflow a couple of weeks ago. So while credit's deteriorating, people are running in to buy more. Just, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess greed is good. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Well, listen. We, we have a we have a guest, a returning guest, joining us today. Um, yes. Our mutual friend John Hathaway is going to be with us in a second. And the, the catalyst for having this conversation was a slide deck that you and I saw that John shared with us from his recent uh, appearance at the Strong Conference. And um, just talk a little bit about that that slide deck and and what you thought when you looked through it. Well, you know, it was very reminiscent of the conversation John and I had with. Bill Strong, a different Strong, um, during the summer when we looked back at the 50-year anniversary of um, you know the establishment of fiat money, thanks to Richard Nixon. Um, but you know, John lays out the case for gold in an environment where you know he he sees inflation clearly um, surprising not just the Fed but everybody else, um, including most institutional investors, on the high side. Um, and he believes that's going to be lasting. Um, but even if it isn't, you know, the backdrop, the supply demand dynamics for gold, which I'm sure he'll get into, are extremely positive. And, you know, what we've seen in the last several years is an environment of unprecedented uh, monetary debasement. Um, and, you know, the unwinding of that is probably not going to be smooth as as uh, investors would like to believe. And so he, he has a pretty compelling case for gold. Um, I don't just say that because I'm a, uh, a big believer to begin with, but, you know, looking through those slides, um, he put together quite an impressive presentation, I think. He did. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, for me, the, the, the big thing, and, and, and again, at the back of my head, I'm aware of all this, but every now and again, you kind of have to check in with the numbers, but just looking at how cheap these companies are, Mm-hmm. And how, well, I say I say cheap, I should probably say unloved because they're cheap because they're unloved. They're not just cheap because they're cheap. It's just it, it's just a reminder of, of, of what value looks like in a world that is clearly, at the very least, starting to pivot from growth to value. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to find anything more valuable than companies that literally pull money out the ground. So um, we'll see. Anyway, yes. why, don't we, uh, why don't we invite John to come and join us and he can tell us all about it. Let's do that. John, welcome back to the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Lovely to talk to you again. Same here. Great to see everybody. You're, look, you're looking resplendent in that lime green jacket. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little chilly here in the desert. It's about uh, 75 degrees. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm and, sure and, our, I, our listeners in yeah, uh, New York on the East Coast right now are, are probably cursing you right now. Yes, we, we just lost <laughs> the East Coast of New York and all of Europe, but never mind. <laughs> So, John, um, lots happened since um, the three of us last got together to talk about this stuff. So, Stefan, I thought it'd be a fantastic time to kind of get an update on your thinking, find out what's changed since we last got our heads together. And the catalyst was uh, 
the presentation you gave recently at the Strong Conference out there in, in Colorado. So um, I figured what we'd try and do to kick off with was just have you kind of walk us through that presentation, the, the kind of genesis of it, the message you were trying to get across. And I think the best thing to do would be to, to kick off with the joke that you began the presentation with, because I thought it was a cracker. <laughs> okay. Well, on the conference, Dick, who's become a good friend, of, he's actually somebody I called on in the 1970s when I was with a growth stock firm called Spencer Trask, and we became reacquainted maybe 15 years ago. We both have homes in Vail. And uh, for the last 20 plus years, Dick has held a conference with the limited number of attendees. I don't know the exact number, maybe 20. And they're from all different disciplines. We had some, some guys speak on oil, face warfare, obviously a lot of macro inputs and you know some individual stock picking. And it's great get together. And it's one of the highlights of the year. And um, you know, Dick, has invited me back for many years now to talk about gold. And it's a great thing for me because I have to crystallize my thinking kind of at the beginning of the year. So um, I guess the, the general train of thought is, uh, and then we'll get to the little joke, is that inflation seems to me, and Stephanie, you and I and Bill Strong did a, not the same guy as Dick Strong, did something in August talking on the 50th anniversary of Nixon closing the gold window. And it was really about inflation's gonna be a problem. And no need to go into it, but somehow we saw this before Jay Powell. And I don't know why. Shocking. Maybe, maybe we're not as well educated. Um, I'm not sure what the, I'm not sure why that is. But starting with the idea that inflation is problematic and maybe more problematic than most investors would like to think, that leads to the thought that the medicine to cure inflation from the Fed's point of view could also kill the stock market. Mm -hmm. And uh, we saw a little bit of that in January, although in my mind, it was nothing compared to what we could have if in fact, we saw the five rate hikes or whatever people, people are trying to get in front of each other talking about all the rate hikes and where the tenure is going to go in 2022. And it made me think that the thing that's been missing for gold is the fact that investors are very comfortable with how they're doing in the stock market. And should that change, and we, again, we got a taste of that in January, then they might look for something different as a strategy. And of course, gold has always been a risk mitigator and uh, a defensive positioning for adverse financial market experiences. So a bear market would be good for gold, in my opinion. Whether we're going to have a bear market or not, I don't know. One of the speakers at Dick's conference, maybe I should get into this later, but I'll just mention it now. And I agree with the general train of thought is that the Fed is much more likely to be resistant to market pressure. So a Powell pivot, like we saw in, was it 2018? You know, it might take longer to materialize. One of the speakers thought, and he's a fairly well-known Fed watcher, actually worked at the Fed, thinks that this time around, the Fed's reaction function will be when the S&P is down 30%. That would be presumably sometime later this year. That, incidentally, um, John, is the same number that Bill Dudley 
another former Fed guy put okay. on it. <laughs> I guess they're all preaching from the same hymnal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do talk to each other. And and part of my thought process is, and and maybe we have a little bit of a difference in our thinking, Stephanie, you and I, is I agree that there are many forces that will work against inflation. The economy is definitely slowing down. But my thought is that when they do pivot, and they'll probably pivot sooner than Dudley and this other fellow think, that'll be inflationary. So um, I just don't see much progress taking place to dampen inflation. And to me, the next page in the book is that uh, the Fed can't take the heat. I mean, Stephanie, you made the great point that we have all this subprime debt maturing over the next three or four years, and it's all financed on the short end. So if we have 1% short end money, I mean, that that could kill a lot of companies, lead to unemployment, bankruptcies, you know, nothing very good for Biden in an election year. So that's kind of how I see it. And it's either, you know, a bear market that makes Powell super unpopular and taking a lot of heat from the administration or another round of Fed balance sheet expansion. I think it's almost down to an either or situation. And so gold, and, and we maybe should get into it. Oh, and by the way, my, my little joke, you know, uh, what do Jay Powell, Arthur Burns, and anchovy and a dead horse have in common? And the answer for people sitting on the edge of the seat is transitory inflation. And then I went into the litany of excuses Arthur Burns gave in the 1970s as to why this inflation was going to go away. And the first thing he talked about was the, the big anchovy kill in the Pacific Ocean. And I forget which kind of El Nino it was, but it was really bad for the fish. Drove up fertilizer prices and then drove up food prices a lot. And Burns simply reacted by saying, this is going to go away. But in the meantime, we'll take food out of the CPI. That was 25%. Genius. <laughs> now, he's, he's a PhD. Uh, don't mean to demean him, but um, <laughs> these, these guys. Slander. They're, they're uh, very professional, uh, highly qualified, et cetera. And, and then inflation didn't go away. And then it became, I think it was mobile homes, gold jewelry, and um, a bunch of other things. Including home ownership, John. Home ownership, you're right. And then by 1975, I think 63% of the components of CPI had been removed. So you kind of fast forward to where we are today. And, you know, until Powell fessed up to inflation really is a problem, you know, we had this thing about supply chain bottlenecks. And I don't mean to get into all of that, but I love what Kevin War said about all of that. And that is that supply chain bottlenecks, chip shortages, the ports being clogged, you name it, is a state of affairs. It's not the root cause. And um, Warsh was a candidate to be the new Fed chair and interviewed Trump, among others. And he was on record uh, as he would have stopped QE, I believe, three or four years after it started. And needless to say, he didn't get the job. But I mean, to me, he's a right-thinking former Fed governor. And his point is that inflation has monetary causes first and foremost. And I know there are those well-schooled in economics who look at velocity 
of M2 and say it's just dying on the vine. And therefore, you know, all these reserves are stuck in the, the banking system. My dog is uh, disagreeing with me. Uh, <laughs> so these reserves are stuck in the banking system. And, and what I think, and I have absolutely nothing more than just my own observation to go with on this, is that the transmission for inflation is no longer the banking system. It could be the shadow banking system. It could be the stock market. And Volcker, when he wrote his memoirs, you know, pointed out that asset price inflation, and he was referring to the stock market, is source of inflation that may transmit into CPI inflation. But I think most of the dialogue today is about CPI inflation and deconstructing it, parsing it, and... Um, you know, we could do that. And I would have a comeback to a lot of the things that people would say. And but let's just see. I mean, I, I agree with you, Stephanie, that the economy is weakening, maybe faster than people realize. We have huge amount of debt, which not only slows growth, but it's a systemic risk because of all the amount of debt that's financed on the short end. So I mean, a lot of reasons to be negative on the economy, for the Fed to make a mistake. And, and again, I just, I don't get it. And you, and, and you pointed out that the last institution that people have confidence in is, is the Fed. And they have to, because you can't explain high stock valuations unless you think the Fed knows what it's doing. And so my train of thought is that we're in a bear market. People might debate that, but I think it's pretty clear that we're in it. And maybe we need further to go with disappointing returns in the market for people to have a recognition of that. But I kind of think that's where we're headed. And I think that is closely linked to confidence in the Fed. And therefore, a bear market or just a, a long period of lackluster returns would lead people to think of something else. And that something else it's not the only thing, but it, something else would be gold, uh, which has been waiting in the wings for many years now. I can, I've been counting them. <laughs> you <laughs> maybe, and me both, Sean. <laughs> maybe the last 10. But there are a lot of reasons to think that all of this could come together. And if you kind of look at what's happening in the gold space, getting away from the macro, is you have really strong demand in Asia both India and China, which are about 60% of physical offtake in Asia, but the rest of Asia looks pretty much the same. It's just that those two are the biggest ones that, that people focus on, are running at rates that are well above pre-COVID levels, 2019 being the, that sort of benchmark. And then, uh, you know, one could ask the question, why hasn't that had an impact on the gold price? And the reason is that Western investors have been liquidating their holdings of gold-backed ETFs, the biggest one being the State Street Spider GLD. And they've been liquidating because one, because they've been doing well in the markets. And then two, because of this narrative that really took hold last June after the FOMC meeting, that the Fed was really going to get tough on inflation and, therefore, and that rates were going to go up. And so most of the quants and algorithmic traders just you know, position gold as a short against a long DXY, long, long US dollar. And that, I think that basically explains the narrative for why between the strong stock market and the um, expectation of higher interest rates for half a year was what kind of buried gold 
uh, not buried it, but just kind of left it out in the cold. But in the first few weeks of this year, inflows have taken off into, into GLD. And in my mind, if you, if you combine inflows into gold-backed ETFs with continuing strong demand in Asia, you have the ingredients for a gold price that could trade well above its high during COVID, which was around 2100 And I don't know why you couldn't see gold trading three or $400 above that, that previous high. And nobody expects it. Uh, again, I mean, probably nobody expects a lot of things that I expect, which is that interest rates aren't going to go up because they can't, that the economy is going to be uh, slowing down and earnings are going to reflect that, and that uh, inflation is going to be a problem longer than anyone thinks. And for all of these reasons, we could see uh, a bear market, which I think would supercharge interest in gold, which has been laying in the weeds. And I need to mention crypto because I always get that question. And I think the aspirations that you know the, the cheerleaders for crypto had for it to be a replacement for gold, a currency, have been totally upset because of the price behavior. I don't know. I don't know where Bitcoin or the others are going to trade six months from now, but. If you overlay a chart of most of the cryptos with NASDAQ, it looks pretty darn similar. And that would suggest that crypto has been, if nothing else, a great speculation. But to then say it's a risk diversifier to me is absolutely nuts. And, you know, and maybe we'll see a digital, you know, we're seeing, for example, Mitsubishi, I think, just announced a gold stable coin that they're going to launch. I don't think they'll be the only one. I think we'll see digital currencies and gold cohabit. And, and I think it, it's, a, it's a natural thing to use gold as a stable coin. So we'll see. I mean, certainly digital currencies are the wave of the future, but maybe not crypto. So let me just sort of wind up gold stocks, which trade at a tremendous discount to the S&P. I guess the, the one thing that sticks in my mind is that enterprise value to EBITDA, just one metric, is about 40% of the S&P. So in my 20 years of following this space, I've never seen gold stocks cheap in absolute terms and on relative terms. So uh, again, that, is, that speaks to the fact that there's no interest, and I can vouch for that because we see very low lackluster flows into or out of our mutual fund, the Sprott Gold Fund. And it's mirrored by the fact that GDX, which is the Van Eck ETF of gold stocks, has actually lost assets over the last two years. And, you know, net net over the last two years, gold is up. In fact, I didn't mention this earlier, but the average gold price in 2021 was actually higher than 2020, not by a lot, by three or four percent. I don't know the exact number. But so for all the headlines about the Fed getting tough on inflation and raising interest rates, which was the narrative that hurt gold, it actually ended up the year in not bad shape. And so the, the one fundamental we care about for the mining companies, the one universal explanation of how they do well or don't do well is the gold price. And so when you have a group that's trading so cheap in absolute terms, many, and I didn't mention this, but dividend yields are higher than the benchmark S&P. It's not a lot, it's like two and a half percent versus whatever the S&P is, but it is higher. So you have value going for you. You have the confluence of very positive developments in the physical sector. And then you have potential for a bear market and the Fed 
getting egg all over their face one more time. Sorry, Mr. Dudley. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty terrific setup for gold. Well, in gold's performance, as you said, in the face of this 180 by the Fed from it's transitory, we don't have to do anything about it to Wall Street, you know, doing a one-upsman contest to see whether they can forecast six, seven, eight rate hikes or, you know, 50 basis points out of the gate in March. Um, gold has actually performed incredibly well, I would say, in the face I, of that. I agree. I mean, it just, it, it's shown a lot of resilience. Fred Hickey pointed out in his latest newsletter, The High Tech Strategist, that if you look at a 10-year chart of gold, it looks fantastic. It's a cup and handle, which, you know, not to get too much into that, but it, to your point, Stephanie, it has resisted all of this blather about the Fed getting really tough and it just hasn't broken out. But my experience with this is when it does break out, it will leave a, a lot of people behind and that, would ex that will explain why I think it could have an explosive move. I'm not sure what the catalyst the day-to-day -day catalyst would be, but I think the setup is, is there for, for that kind of event. So, um, end of story. John, let, let me ask you, um, when you spoke there about the fact that uh, everyone's expecting a bunch of rate hikes, the Fed are talking tough for the first time in a while, and you mentioned that you thought if Powell actually ultimately lets the stock market fall and then pivots back to lower rates and QE, you said that that would be inflationary. And, I, and I'm just curious because, I, I, again, I, I understand that, but obviously that's been the narrative for the longest time. And it does now feel that we're at the point where the gears are, are synchronized and Fed policy might actually lead to translatable inflation to the man in the street. But what do you think the difference is this time around? Is it the fact that the inflation is already built into the system and this will just trigger it? Or is there something else that, that might mean that finally we get to the point where the reaction function to Fed policy translates directly into CPI inflation to the man in the street? Uh, okay, good. I, uh, let me just say um, that this discussion of inflation, and I'll come back to that, is important when it represents a potential systemic risk. But there were times when gold did very well, for example, from 1999 through 2011, when inflation was not a front page issue. Yeah. So gold, gold should not be thought of, and I, but it is widely thought of, but I think it's, it's incorrect to position gold as an inflation hedge. It's really a hedge against monetary malpractice of the kind we've seen from this Fed for the last 20 years. Sorry, again, Bill Dudley. But, and so I don't, I don't want this to be so much about inflation from my point of view, but more about the systemic risk that arose from ultra low interest rates following the dot-com smash, the housing bubble, the bubble in the stock market since QE, and now uh, the huge amount of debt that we're issuing to sustain economic growth. So I think that is really more the backdrop and inflation if you look at what happened in the 1970s, we had a recession. I think it was 75, two years of down GDP, not a huge, huge down, but I think it was 74, 75, or yeah, I think that was it. And um, of course, it was a different Fed, 
different tactics, but it was definitely rapid growth of the monetary aggregates and the Fed being behind the curve in terms of real interest rates. And after that recession, they just amped up that policy, that strategy. And of course, we all know how that worked out. So I, I, I don't know how this is going to play out, but I do think that um, the pivot, when it comes, uh, will be read as inflationary, perceived as inflationary. And whether it actually turns out to be CPI inflation in the way that, that you hear talked about in all the financial media, I don't really, maybe not, but I kind of think it will. And it will, you know, you, you can have high inflation coexisting with high unemployment. You saw that throughout the 70s. Yeah. You had lackluster growth and you had high inflation. So I think you have to go back to monetary and again, not to get hung up on CPI inflation, it's really what's behind that and the cause of it. And today it's it's Fed balance sheet expansion. In the 70s, it was expansion of the monetary aggregates. And the transmission me- mechanism to the CPI, we, we could argue or discuss all day long, but I think there's a high component of it that is perception, behavior, which then gets imprinted in the way people think and behave, purchasing managers, consumers, et cetera, et cetera. And it takes on a life of its own. That's what I fear could happen. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm just happy if the Fed loses complete faith <laughs> and people lose confidence in it. I think that that'll be enough to get people to think about gold and the Fed really is in a really tough spot and may not know what they're doing. Well, this brings me to the question I've been chomping at the bit to ask you, and that is you've got the Powell pivot as you know really propelling gold higher and i agree with you 100 percent gold is not just a traditional hedge against inflation and currency debasement but against financial stability or an instability as well and we've seen that repeatedly so the question begs if powell pivots does it work because if it doesn't work you know, he, he does the 180 like he did in the fourth quarter of 2018, but the market doesn't respond the way it did then. And we continue to see rising volatility and financial stress. That's where I think you and I part company on the inflationary implications, because I see that as very disinflationary, even deflationary. But I guess it ultimately comes down to your view of whether the Fed's pivot will have the same result it did in the fourth quarter of 18 and all the times prior, or whether they're finally going to lose the credibility that has mystified all of us for so long, you know, that they've maintained. Do you have thoughts on that? No, no, I think that's, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, loss of credibility could come from a lot of things. And one of them could be that this medicine or this playbook that they've had for the last really 20 years is no longer potent that it's become useless. And then where do we go from there? And I kind of think that could be the moment that- Yeah, where do they cut rates? I mean, they can't can't cut rates. We we haven't even talked about the fiscal issues, but but I think they sort of go hand in hand with the dilemma that the Fed's in. But I agree, I think that- it's the loss loss of confidence in the playbook that has made so much money for so people so many people that didn't know what they were doing. They just had to they just had to be in the game. One of the speakers at Dick's conference has a large investment firm um, in Texas, and he's been he's a real veteran. He said he's never seen investors so complacent about I guess the state of the world. 
because they've made so much money for so long and they just they're not attentive to what's going on. And that's a very interesting observation. But I think we we could all agree that the complacency that is still resistant to the thought process that we're talking about and maybe just the warning across the bow in January with the Nasdaq being down 10%, I guess the biggest that it's ever had on a monthly basis, it just has yet to sink in. I think there were inflows into stock mutual funds in all but two days in January. So you know, the buy the dip crowd is alive and well, and maybe they'll be right, but I, I would sure bet against it. I wonder how the buy the dip crowd in the gold equities have been doing because they <laughs> they've been buying dip after dip after dip after dip. They're looking at I, I don't, yeah. they don't exist. <laughs> so John, let's just go back to um, the stuff you mentioned about Arthur Burns, because I, th- I think this is a really great lesson for people when, when, when they're trying to think about, okay, what options do policymakers have? And um, you demonstrated a, a tremendous one there that, that really won't be on many people's radars, and that's what they did to CPI calculations back when this became a problem in the 70s. When you look at it from our perspective and you look back, you can see all these things and you realise how crazy it is to adjust the inputs. And we've, we've got decades of, of you know, hedonics and substitution and all kinds of things done deliberately to massage that CPI number lower. So you know, investors need to be aware that these are the kinds of things that happen in critical points. The rules of the game get changed and, and the calculations get changed to make them lower. But do you think today they'd be able to get away with that because there's just so much more commentary. There's so many more people looking at moves like that and with platforms and wide audiences that they can debunk what the Fed are doing, that if they did something like that, if they did try and change the, I don't know, the percentage of owner equivalent rent, or they're trying to change the components in the basket, do you think that would actually, this time around, be a dangerous thing for them to do just because of the sheer ease with which people can pick that apart in the public arena? For sure. I mean, I, I mean, if they try it, I think that would be one more building block to the the case for the Fed losing the trust of the investment world. I, I, I can't believe they would be so dumb as to do that. But you know, in the 70s, it was different. Uh, people were gullible. I guess people are still gullible today. I just, but I think you're right. I think it's just, it's so closely watched. I don't think they could get away with it. Also, the man on the street knows what his experience is. I mean, I just ordered something on Amazon and I went to check out and I guess some items I had bought months ago, they announced, you know, some items you had have changed in price and they have on the top all the ones that went up in price and on the bottom all the ones that went down in price. So, I mean, I'm not even shopping for that stuff and it's in my face. You know, I think everyone's experience. Yeah, is so, so that's right. With all Exactly. Amazon being a great example. I, I just think they, I don't think they could get away with it. That may not stop them from trying though. <laughs> they might try. Desperate times call for desperate measures. You know, wage and price controls, you know? Yeah. So, John, you, in your prologue, um, talked about um, China and demand from Asia in general for gold that we've seen, and then a segue to commentary about digital currencies and the emergence of digital-backed gold and I want you to link those two together um, because China, we know, is starting to work on doing a digital currency. Do you think gold will play a role in that? Is it something that factors into your thesis for gold, or is that just kind of that would be gravy on the top if it happened? Yeah, I think it's it, it more the latter. Uh-huh. But gold, you know, hasn't had much usage as a transactional medium 
close to a century. Did you see the video that's going around of uh, this guy, Mark Dice, on the street offering people to swap his Canadian maple leaf for their sunglasses or a T-shirt or whatever they happen to be carrying? Uh, you know, it's great. I mean, this thing goes on for a good 10 minutes and he's talking to people right and left and saying, I've got this Canadian maple leaf. We can verify it's real right over here. Yeah. Oh, no, I can't give you my $20 Gap T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, people just don't think of it that way. And that's, that's a good, that's a good example of, of ignorance by the grassroots, although they, they may talk about it. So um, I think it's going to be a while before that happens, but I do think it can happen. And to the extent that it does, it's obviously a positive, but I don't think we need that to happen. You know, I guess that the bottom line is for the investment world to lose confidence in the Fed. I think that's the, that's the nub. And it could happen several different ways. It could happen through a combination of things. But I think that really, I guess you could say gold is a put on, Fed, on confidence in the Fed. John, let, let me ask you about the gold mining companies, because obviously you, you focus on those pretty strongly. What have you seen happening in the last couple of years in terms of actions taken by gold miners to position themselves better for the next bull run? Because there's been a lot of excellent work done on the state of the balance sheets when gold was really kind of uh, on the outs the last few years. Talk about the change in the company's setup and how they're prepared for the next run in the gold price. Well, they went, they went through uh, this near-death experience through overexpansion as gold was hitting its peak in 2011. Bad balance sheets, bad investing, poor rates of return. And I don't think they've recovered from that. I think there, there are a few that are thinking more aggressively, but I would say on balance, there is a prevailing mood of caution, unwillingness to risk balance sheets. And, and then one other thing I'll mention is that um, resource nationalism is rampant almost everywhere you can think of. So in addition to capital starvation, which is sort of what I just talked about, the unwillingness to invest or the reluctance to invest, the world that we can invest in has really shrunk by maybe 50%. Um, there's a coup of the week in West Africa. Chile is, I guess, voting on a new constitution. Previously attractive areas, not only because of geology, but because the governments were cooperative and, and you didn't have this resource nationalism that is really, it's, it, really all over, is a huge game stopper for new investment. So, you know, with all the other hurdles, and then I haven't mentioned ESG, that's another hurdle that we didn't have to deal with. Or the, and, frank, I, and I think the industry has done a poor job of talking about the good that they've done in the areas where they have worked. So that's one thing. But we now have this sort of thing, woke capitalism, you know, progressive values are sort of taking over corporate America and, and the mining industry is not immune. So you put all that together. And I would say the case for dwindling supply of newly mined gold is very, very strong. And as far as we go, we're investing in fewer and fewer countries and we, we invest where we think there's a rule of law because these, these mines, if they're significant, have a 20 year, 30 year life and, you know, governments come and go. Rule of law is really important. And so I think you have a, a really powerful case for a very muted response in terms of new production to a big jump in the gold price. I could, I could, I just posit that 
a $500 increase in the gold price, which would be wonderful for anybody who's already in production or about to ready a mine for having run the gauntlet of all the permitting and so forth that will be producing. That's going to be spectacular for them. But as far as encouraging new investment, uh, I would say it, it probably is going to have much less of an impact than, than people might think. John, you talked about ESG and that kind of dovetails with oil prices. At $90 a barrel, obviously, that's not incentivizing a whole lot of production either. Um, right. Is there a point at which that becomes a real problem for them? Or, I mean, if we see $100 oil, I guess it just means you get even less supply, which should be bullish for the price, but for the companies themselves, uh, well, are they catching that? There's no question. Yeah, no, I think, I think the, the, the question is profit margins with higher energy prices, higher labor cost. I mean, I could go through the list of a lot of things where, you know, it's not the consumer, but it, here's an industry which is faced with tremendous price inflation and then additional costs layered on that because of ESG, COVID protocols, all of that stuff. So the all-in cost of mining an ounce of gold, say it's roughly $1,100 or, or it was in 2021, it'll probably be up 10% in 2022. And the cost of building new capacity, we've seen huge blowouts in capital spending on projects that were thought to be, call it 500 million, or maybe going to be 700 million. And add to that delays because of permitting and, and compliance with ESG protocols, permitting, all of that stuff. So in a way, we need for the industry to maintain its very high level of profitability. We do need for the gold price to move off the dime from where it has been, which is basically around 1800, more or less. And so uh, I think we'll see that. But without it, I think that probably is one of the negative arguments you could make against uh, investing in miners as opposed to just in buying the metal itself. Mm -hmm. John, let me, let me ask you, you, you kind of rounded off your presentation with a look at the gold mining stocks relative to the broader index. And while there will be people listening to this conversation who've been long certain gold equities for a while and you know in and out of the sector, there'll be others who are really starting to take a look at this stuff for the first time, given the change in the inflation background, which is, as you say, is the reason most people kind of tend to automatically reflexively look at gold. So just um, if you can quantify the, the gold mining equities versus the broader market, because until you do that, you, you really don't realize just how cheap these damn things have become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could just, there are a bunch of things you could compare. Um, PE ratio, 15 times versus 21 for the S&P. Free cash flow yields, 5%. Return on capitals, twice what you see for the typical S&P company. Profit margins are 50% higher. I think that's probably operating profit. And their, their balance sheets are actually quite strong, very low debt, probably surplus cash. So if you look at the financial picture for the gold miners, it's a pretty healthy situation. And again, I say the one the one negative is is the potential for margin squeeze in a flat gold price environment. But their ability to withstand another six months or a year of this, I hope it doesn't happen. Just because I'm running out of patience, <laughs> um, they're going to be around. They, what they represent are out of the money calls on a higher gold price. Mm -hmm. And they can they can provide that and higher octane than just being long the metal itself, particularly in a in a sequence where the gold price 
is moving dynamically, you're likely to get two or three X that move in the gold price in, in shares of mining companies. Well, to give you a um, array of hope for that, uh, there's a headline that just came across Bloomberg that if uh, we get a hot CPI, it increases the odds that the Fed's going to tighten 50. And I'm sure you saw the cover of The Economist this week, um, with it, which was how high are rates going to go? So I yeah, think no, that's, that, that should make you happy because <laughs> it does. <laughs> they're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Fred Hickey uh, just read his newsletter. The title of it was Irritable Powell Syndrome. <laughs> That's genius. I've been oh kicking my myself. I've been kicking I'm myself. I'm so jealous. Of that. Yeah, I know, right? yeah, that is brilliant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, mic drop right there. Yeah, so I mean, you know, these next three or four months are going to be very interesting. Yeah. As far as, I guess, the what, the CPI print is tomorrow? Yes. Yeah. So I don't see how that can, I mean, near term, I don't see that doing anything to make anybody happy on the, on the, yeah. So you're right. The headlines will be, you know, 50 basis points. Yeah. John, if, if I can, um, <laughs> just, uh, just, just to finish, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about the seventies because obviously none of the three of us were around, but your father was around John. So perhaps we could uh, talk about <laughs> <You're still laughs> We can talk about oh, conversations man. you may have had with him about what actually <laughs> happened in the 70s and how how things kind of played out. Because obviously before the 70s and all the stuff we've, we've, we've talked about a little bit, they were in a situation not unfamiliar with the one we're in now where people didn't believe this was going to be a problem and it wasn't a problem and then they fought it for a while and then eventually it got out of hand. So... Just talk a little bit, if you can, about any parallels your father may have shared with you about um, about how how this next phase might play out. Well, he was telling me about these gas lines. <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, we had these uh, demonstrations. It was sort of at the end of the Vietnam War, and um, I'm sure that affected valuations of financial assets. Just that just that social tension, which you know, could be around the corner for us now. You know, frankly, uh, the 70s were a little bit like the 60s, which Timothy Leary said, if you remember them, you weren't there. And, you know, that was a little bit my case in the 70s. I mean, I I remember um, being with a growth stock firm and, you know, basically being a cheerleader for the nifty 50 stocks. And then uh, post-1975, going to a value shop, where stocks just getting, kept getting cheaper and cheaper. And good companies traded for six times earnings with 6% dividend yields. And I guess, uh, you know, thank you for reminding me of the 70s. What I think is most important to remember about it is that it was a bear market. It lasted for 10 years. It wasn't the stupid definition you hear on Bloomberg or CNBC, oh, down 20%. Oh, it's a bear market. It was like, man, I don't want to go to work today. Hmm. This really sucks. And I, I remember people would look at me with pity that I was in the investment <laughs> business. It was really bad. Yeah. Um, Dow went nowhere for 10 years. I mean, that's un there's nobody around today. I mean, I'm one of the few fessing up to my real age that remembers that. And it was just a death march to Corregidor. I, I just, nobody that I see, that I talk to, very few 
remember that. And I love Bob, first of all, I loved your chart, Stephanie, which I used in my presentation of showing the similarity between the Fed balance sheet growth and the S&P. Pure coincidence, um, I'm sure. <laughs> just to recall another veteran of those days, Bob Farrell, the great strategist with Merrill Lynch, said that markets that go straight up go further than you think. But when they correct, they don't correct by going sideways. And so, again, I, I'm struck by the fact that there's so much complacency that we saw in the midst of a rout of NASDAQ stocks in January, the buy the dip crowd was unfazed. And so to return to the state of mind of the 1970s, which had inflation, but it had a lot of other things that, that nobody in today's market has experienced, would be such a 180 from where we are today. And again, I, I would say, given the speculation that we've seen, the speculation in financial asset prices, the speculation in non-fungible tokens, cryptos, all of that kind of thing. I, I guess another clincher for that is the renaming of the, uh, I guess it's the Ram Stadium as Crypto Stadium. We're so far away from what I remember in the 70s. Now, life was great. You had to wait in line for gas. I mean, it wasn't the end of the world, but it was a very different world in terms of the financial markets. And it was a time when gold did really well. And I, uh, you know, it's hard to know exactly the sequences that are going to get us to that. But it seems to me um, just in, you know, sort of proportionality, reversion to mean and that kind of thing. If we just go halfway there, I think we could see gold over 3000, you know, big numbers that, that is nobody is even thinking about. And of course, it's hard to talk about it to prospective investors. Because if you <laughs> say that, it's, man, I've got, I've got CrowdStrike. I've got, I've got Tesla. You know, don't you, you know, ruin my day. So you have to be really careful about how you talk about it, except in a, in a, in a, in a very edified group like this. That's <laughs> it. John, the, the one thing you haven't done is ruin anybody's day, certainly on this podcast. So, um, so John, look, thanks, thanks so much again for for doing this with us. Um, perhaps uh, if you'd be so generous, you wouldn't mind sharing the slides that we've been talking about with the audience, because I'm sure there'll be plenty of people that would want to that will want to see them. It's a, it's just a fantastic deck. Thank you. Be happy to do it. All right, brilliant. I'll I'll, I'll attach that with the with the transcript or anything else. And, and, and I, I do get, I do have to run yeah. it by compliance, but I'm sure they'll find it's fun. All right. Okay. Well, you, <laughs> we can always redact things from it if we need to before it goes out. These things always look much more important with the black bars over certain words. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, John, look, thanks again. It's always it's always a real pleasure to get a chance to talk to you, and um, hopefully the three of us can can do it in person at some point. In the well, I love it. Yeah, I think the last time I saw you in person was uh, at Simon's apartment in in New York. Yes, that's right. That was right. That was a while ago now. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll do it when uh, gold is significantly north of $2,000 or maybe three. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. See, I am an optimist. There you go. <laughs> Thanks right. again, John. Take care. Uh, thank, thank you, you John. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there we go, Steph. I have to say, it's just, it's, I, I love talking to John he's, because he's seen this stuff. He has such a balanced perspective on it all. He has the experience. He's, he's not kind of just he's, – he's, we're all making guesses about the future – but he has the kind of grounding in 
making guesses about a future that's likely very similar to a past that so many people don't remember. Well, it's interesting when you asked him about the 70s, as he described it, it just sounded like the mirror image of today, where yeah. now people come into, you know, trade the markets every day and they expect they'll be up. And as many institutional managers have never seen a bear market before and have no idea what he's talking about, the whole cadre of retail investors who have just recently joined the market, I mean, they obviously have been shocked to learn that stocks actually can go down in price. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a refreshing perspective after so long where things just seem to march higher for no apparent reason. But you, but you well, and I remember post-2000, post you remember all the people who were day trading. You, you forget yeah. that it was a very similar mania to the one we're seeing today, but the, what happened in the, in the NASDAQ bubble, all those people just stopped day trading. They just couldn't yeah. take it anymore. And, and you know, that's that's the thing. Everyone today who's on their phone, checking their phone 15 times a day and, you know, using apps and trade trade and stuff, they can't conceive a world where they don't want to do that. But the markets have a habit of putting you in that position. You know, I had lunch here in Sydney with some guys yesterday. And one of them told me that um, he was talking to a guy that, that runs a fund and, and the traders on his desk I mean, we, we have these conversations about, oh, you know, there are people that don't remember this or don't remember that. Mm -hmm. The traders on his desk were amazed when the 10-year bond yield went positive. They'd never seen a 10-year, a positive 10-year oh, bond yield. Wow. Just. Oh, my God. That is <laughs> so, terrifying. Oh man, just, just, I mean, imagine that. Imagine right. your mindset That's your time being, frame, yeah. But, but also your mindset being, wait, these can trade with a positive yield? All right. And and think about what that and we're does. still trying to wrap our head around the fact that they actually went negative. <laughs> I know. But, but but imagine what that does. It if you if you didn't really think that through and suddenly these things are trading with a positive yield, and you're gonna go, you know, I have to rethink everything I know about yeah, yeah. <laughs> financial world works if these things can trade with a positive yield. And that's kind oh, of where we are, you know, it's amazing. Absolutely. And I don't know about you, but anecdotally, the friends that I have who have been you know, day trading, um, were smacked around in January and complained about it a lot, but they still haven't stopped. Yeah. So I think it's going to take, you know, a lot of Chinese water torture before they finally yeah. give in, um, because they are just so acclimated to things immediately turning around, which is why I asked John that question about whether the pivot will work, you know, yeah. because that buy the dip mentality is so Pavlovian, you know, so programmed now um, that, sorry, speaking of Pavlovian, <laughs> the dog barks, right? I mean, I was just gonna uh, say. <laughs> <laughs> folks, we did not plan that. <laughs> oh my God, this is brilliant. Yeah, we, we should probably also uh, mention, uh, I think, given the times we live in, Steph, that water tortures ascribed to other countries are also available. <laughs> God, this is not Wuhan water torture. The, oh the uh, I, I, I'd say, well, as as we went through the podcast, anyone who's listening to this podcast with headphones on will, if they listen very carefully, be able to hear Wilhelmina just gently snoring under your desk. It was really, it was really. Did quite you hear tranquil. that? Oh my now, god! Every now and now, every now and again, I could hear. It. I thought, oh, this is just great. I kept <laughs> kicking her when she got really loud, and I did finally figure out I could mute my microphone. 
But yes, that wasn't me snoring no. <laughs> through the no. presentation. I, and I, I'm a witness because I could see that. Well, Steph, all I guess that remains is for us to thank our guest, John Hathaway. Uh, as always, it's always great fun talking to him. To thank you for joining me once again and to thank everybody out there for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. If you'd like to do so, you'll find us. Oh, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at S Tomboy. See? Very we clever. Thought, we thought you might <laughs> never, ever get the hang of that. Uh, hundred that's times all, the charm. <laughs> that's all for now. We will be back again at some point in the not too distant future, I hope. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.